Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Yeah. Okay. Recording. Okay, so um, a lot of you will have seen these slides before, uh, and you thought that Dwayne made them up. <laughs> they were mine, and I lent them to him, just like you know. I don't feel bad. It's perfectly okay. I gave them to him. He must have changed his, changed them a little bit then, because yours are easier to read. Well, he changed uh, he changed them into like examples about golf, you know, because it's Dwayne and fish because he's from Newfoundland. Um, so. We're talking about something called exploratory data analysis today, and probably on uh, Tuesday as well. Oh, by the way, that's recording up there because that syncs this video to the audio and it gets posted in a different way. Anyway, um, so if you're going to find out anything about a data set, you have to understand the data themselves. Okay, So you have to get a feel for your numbers is, is one of the, the things that I always say. Um, and it's getting comfortable enough to your data that you can look at them at the numbers and understand what they're about, understand what they mean. That, that's what I'm talking about here. What this allows you to do is it allows you to find mistakes. A lot of times you get coding errors. If you got big data sets, and a lot of us, you know, um, some of you guys might be interested in very small kind of experiments, the kind of things I do where I do my data analysis by hand and collect the data by hand, and basically I write it down on a piece of paper, you know, or in the spreadsheets, I thought, um, the kind of stuff I do works like that. But a lot of people aren't interested in that, they're interested in very big data sets, and especially if you go on into grad school or something, you've got like hundreds and hundreds of records, right? So I think about a friend of mine, Todd, who did an experiment, well, like studying, I guess, an experiment, looking at, and I'll talk about this quite a bit, this example because it shows a lot of things. My friend Todd Heatherton did this study where he asked about 500 people about their smoking behavior. And he was trying to predict people, he was trying to predict how many cigarettes people smoke per day. That was his, but, and that's easy to do actually if I take a sample of your saliva. It's, there's a, a couple of simple measures I can take. I can get the amount of nicotine in your saliva and the amount of, of uh, cocaine, which is a stable uh, metabolite of nicotine, and we know what the half-life is. It's really simple to determine. Except that if you go to a doctor's office and the doctor asks you how many cigarettes do you smoke per day, almost, first of all, almost everybody underestimates how much they smoke. And who knows why people underestimate it. Because one of the ways of quitting smoking, in fact, is to, the first thing you do is you self-wander. Every time you have a cigarette, you write it down. Almost everyone has the same reaction. I smoke 35 cigarettes a day. I thought it was 20. Most, it's just very common that people have that reaction. So if you're going to the doctor and you want to quit smoking, the first thing they want to know is how much do you smoke, and you want to get an accurate number. And most people don't want to be spitting into a cup or have a swab taken to their face inside their mouth. And frankly, you still have to send it out to a lab. So instead, why not develop a behavioral measure? This is what Todd was doing. So he measured, he did measure cocaine, and he did measure nicotine in the saliva. Uh, he measured the carbon monoxide in their, in their uh, breath. But he also then measured about 22, I think, behavioral things. Okay? And 
He then asked people how many cigarettes they smoked, they smoked per day. It's the best he could do. But of course, with the coping and nicotine measures, he could also tell if they were telling the truth, etc. Why am I telling you this? Because people, he had 500 people. He surveyed actually at the Ontario Science Center in Toronto when he was in grad school. He used to say, a great place to go to get data from the average person is the science center. People are already interested in science. They'll fill out questionnaires. They have no problem with it. And secondly, it's a pretty good cross-section of people. We used to, when I was a uh, grad student, we used to work with this data set a lot. Uh, because Todd had, you know, Todd had the data set available, and he, he TA'd the graduate stats course. And one of the things we found, there were mistakes in the coding, because people are just right punching into a number pad, because people fill out these questionnaires on a computer. So you'd see things like one person listed that they smoked 400 cigarettes a day. Now that really can't be done. I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> it's a time. Um, that's professional smoking. That's screw the Olympics, go pro. I mean, that's a lot of cigarettes. There's no way the person smoked 400 a day. It was probably 40, and the person hit the zero twice. Is it possible? Because that's about 20 packs a day. 20 small packs, or four, eight, six, yeah, 16 big packs a day. That, you couldn't do that. You need to right. be like doubling it up at the same time. You have to be smoking like for about 16 hours. Well, about 16 packs a day, you need to smoke a pack an hour, assuming you have eight hours of sleep. That's 25 cigarettes an hour. That'd be hard to do. It would be likely possible, but you would be sick to your stomach so badly after probably the first hour. As someone who used to smoke, I mean, that's impressive. There's no way you can do that. You know, I saw other ones where you see people ask people when they, how old were they when they started smoking was another one of the behavioral things he asked people. And you see very common numbers, and this was these data were collected in the mid-80s, so you saw very common numbers like 12, 13, 14, as low as 10, 11. Um, but you saw one person that said two. You thought, that's probably 12. They probably missed the one. Or it could have been 20, two, zero. But there's no way it's two. Yes, I know we've all seen The Smoking Baby on YouTube. Um, you've not seen that? What? You've not seen The Smoking Baby? Please tell me that's like... <laughs> no, it's real. Yeah, it's real. It's real. Oh. It's from like the Philippines or Indonesia or something. They're all nuts over there. Oh, um, it's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> I don't know if they're nuts. Because I saw a thing like an English show. You remember the show from England called um, um, uh, Honey, We're Killing the Kids? Did you ever see that on the Food Network? <laughs> and it was people that fed their kids really poorly. And, and the bad health the habits, and then they would say, "And you're killing them." You have to do watch a Mori episode. Yeah, <laughs> and then they show them. We've used computer enhanced technology to show you what your children look like at the age of forty, and they just took Photoshop and put wrinkles in the kids, basically, and made them fat. You know, but the one kid, they said, and they always tell the parents they had to go along with the kids. Makes sense, right? Because usually, if you eat, your kids eat pretty poorly, usually you do too. You always get great things up. I don't know how to cook from fresh, was one of my favorite ones. <laughs> but I remember one of the parents said, they would very often people smoked, because it's a thing people do. You know. um, well, you're going to have to quit, as an example, you're going to have to quit, quit smoking cigarettes. And the mother's like, right, okay, I think I can do it. And the kids' table goes, do I have to quit smoking too? <laughs> and then they show pictures. I think he's four years old. He's sucking on a butt. 
And he's not like, and he's holding it like, you know, a smoker. Like, he's not just, it was great. Um, they found an ashtray in his room, and he's like, Dad, been smoking since I was four. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, you know, I don't know where they find these people. Um, wow. Yeah. So maybe it's true, but those people are pretty rare. So those are probably coding errors. You didn't think you'd get stories like that in staff class, did you? <laughs> you <just did> so <coughs> you can find a mistake. Those, are, those coding errors happen, especially big data sets. <coughs> right? Yeah, it's possible. Both of those things were possible to smoke when they were too. It's unlikely. There's when smoke four cigarettes a day. That's almost certainly not true. What do you do in that case? There's a lot of ways to deal with it. I would just not... I, um, I would perhaps delete the whole record, or I would like just leave it as I could use the average. There's a lot of ways you can do that. We'll talk about that throughout the course. It's also nice and easy to guess what actually happened. One of the things my PhD supervisor used to say is statistics are there to prove what you already know. You should be able to take a look at your numbers and say, after doing some techniques, we'll talk about it in the next couple of days. And say, oh, I know what happened in my experiment. I know what happened. So you actually know what happened, but you got to then prove it, right? Because you should be able to like, draw yourself a graph and say, oh, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure I know what went on. And like I said, odd values, these could be, mistakes are different from what we might call just weird numbers. Because it could be the case, in fact, the person wasn't lying about being two when they started smoking. It's possible. But... If that's the case, do we want to include their data at all? Because are they actually like the average person? The answer, of course, is no, they're not. Right? If we want to build a model, that's what we're trying to do, to predict smoking behavior, do we want to do that? And uh, include people that are frankly, you know, and this isn't pejorative, pretty abnormal. No, probably not. Right? So you might, you know, you can make an argument saying you don't want to. So it could be they're true, right? So one of the most important and over and undervalued uh, and overlooked parts of statistics is called exploratory data analysis, or EDA, as I call it. Uh, this was developed by John Tukey, and you'll hear more about Tukey throughout the course because Tukey developed a post hoc test called the Tukey test. Analysis of variance. <coughs> Excuse me. This allows you to generate hypotheses and get a feel for your data. Um, in other words, it's just a series of ways of, of, of making graphs and stuff. That's really all it is. It's descriptive statistics. Right? You know about inferential statistics, that's what almost all this course is going to be about. But it's really, this is about descriptive statistics, also make drawing pictures. That's really what this is all about. Okay. One of the things this does then is it gets you an idea of what happened in your experiment, but you don't lose richness in your data. What do I mean by that? Typically, when we do experiments, when we analyze our data, when we're looking at the data themselves, we, we, we aren't looking, we're looking at means, right? Look at averages. We aren't looking at individual numbers. What this, these techniques allow us to do is still see all the original numbers. 
So we can still spot those, uh, what people sometimes call outliers, or we can spot mistakes. Or just get a feel for how things worked. One of the things I always ask my honors students to do when they want to show me their data is I say, just draw me a graph. And you don't have to do it, don't, don't, you have to do it with a, with, a, with a computer program. Go get some graph paper and just draw me a graph. Because what that makes you do is it makes you get all, sorry, that makes all your, <laughs> makes you take all your numbers and play with them with a calculator for a bit, or even with Excel or something. At least you have to look at the freaking numbers. And then sometimes things jump out at you. Right? And that was something about the reason I asked people to do that is I was, I was trained that way. Every week when I was in grad school, I had a meeting with my supervisor, and there was a graph I brought with me. It was more and more dog-eared as time went on. So look, I made up some numbers. I don't know what these are. You have values, and there's a number of times they happened. So I'm not a very creative person. <clears throat> uh, let's pretend those are test scores out of 35. How's that? Okay, let's go with that. Test scores out of 35. So how many times, uh, one person got 10 out of 35? Oh, well, that's a bit of a problem. <laughs> a couple people got 23, that's okay. Five people got 25. This actually looks really similar to the kind of distribution I would get in a, in a statistics test. This is not bad. Uh, a couple people got 30, one person got 33, and one person got perfect. Not bad. Not bad. Now this might tell us a few things. First of all, let's say this was a multiple choice test with four alternatives. Let's pretend. I'm, I'm not, I don't know what, I'm making this up as I go because I, I don't know what the hell these things even are. If that's the case, this guy's not a lot better than random chance, is he? Because 25% would be random chance. 25% of 35 is uh, quarter 35, four, three, about seven point something. He's not a lot above random chance. This guy might not have actually registered in the course properly. You know, like he, he didn't come to class. He, maybe he came to the wrong class, wrote a test mistakenly. I don't know. So that, or, or this person is so confused. The right around chance, that, that's just confused. Like that's, a monkey can do that. Perfect is good. I would look at this and say, oh, look, for the most part, people did 25 out of 35. That's pretty good. That's 71. Five seconds. That's a pretty decent score. I'd, I'd be quite happy with the distribution. Like, I'd be a little concerned about the guy that got 10. Because, look, this guy's way out there. One of the things you lose with this sort of, this sort of uh, table there's no scale here. So really, this should be, if this was to scale, way up there. Right? That would then concern me. But at least I'm getting an idea of how people did. And this kind of frequency table, relevant frequency table, is a really useful thing. And notice how it can already tell us something about a batch of numbers. It allows us to make a couple calculations. Um, this relative frequency table allows us to calculate the, the sum, so the total of all the scores, which is just the sum of the x's times the frequencies. Right? So you have like 1 times 10 plus 7, uh, 23 again, there's 3 times 23 plus 5 times 25, whatever the hell it is. 
plus, uh, was one times 30, one times 33, one times 35, or, or whatever the numbers were. This is, this is going to be useful. This is going to obviously allow us to calculate the average, the mean. And if you don't remember this big symbol, this big capital Greek sigma, that's it's for summation. You're summing them. Okay? Which is what I've got here. What did they, what did they guess when it's actually written there? 10 times 1, 23 times 2, 25 times 5, 30 times 2, 33 times 1, 35 times. That should be 1. That should be close parentheses, not a 0. Which gives us 309. Why is that going to be useful? Well, obviously, that's going to allow us to calculate the, the mean. And you're saying to me, why wouldn't I do this? Yeah, sure, you could do with Excel. But with the amount of numbers this small, I'd rather, personally, I, honestly, I would do this by hand, just so I was had a good, and it's not because I'm old or something. Uh, I, I, I love computers, as most of you know, uh, and technology, but I'd rather get this sort of, I'd rather get into the numbers themselves. It allows me to understand, to find mistakes, etc. as I mentioned. So this, we can also do what's called the relative frequency histogram. You can actually use this, it's the same numbers to get a relative frequency histogram. There's one right there. Why does that look so ugly? I just did that with a Google spreadsheet. <laughs> it's not like this would be anything I would put in a paper. This is, this is for me, so I can look at it and say, oh, I see what this is. I get a feel for this. Now this is where you see, oh, look. And look, it's got a scale on it. I don't really care about the scale. I just want like where the midpoints of these things are and all that. I have to say, I don't care. These are for me, these aren't for presentation anywhere. But I can look and see, well, that's weird. Let's look up who that is. And look at this scale. Why is it? Well, there aren't quarters of people in the world. But I don't care. The scale itself is reasonable enough. Again, because I just had it default did this using um, Google Spreadsheet, I think I used that. Or I might have used Numbers, which is a Mac uh, spreadsheet program. But I mean, it was, you know, I wasn't using a fancy statistical package at all, obviously. Right? Or I wasn't using a, a graphing package, obviously, as well. But I can, I can see what's going on. I've lost no richness in the data. What do I mean by that? I can actually reconstruct all the numbers. Especially if I had a scale that looked a little nicer, it didn't say one and a quarter, but I know that's one. So one person got 10, that's probably what, 23, so two people, I can't count them. I've lost nothing. I can actually rebuild the data. And to me, that's kind of important. <coughs> right, so I can reconstruct the whole data set if I want to. <coughs> Now, it's not like, well, why are you saying that's important? Like, are you going to lose the data? Are you use that? No, it's, no, it's not that. It's the fact that I can look at this, and I can be sharing this with a colleague or a friend, and say, and they can look at it and say, oh, I see one person got 10 out of 35. That seems low. What's going on there? Right? They don't have to look and try to convert a new percentage or anything like that. They just say, oh, it's one person. And to me, like I said, um, that can be useful. Questions so far? You good? Yeah. You can spot oddities, as I mentioned, and that's that right there. 
That's a weird score. Assuming this is, like I said, let's pretend these are tests. That's an odd score. You know how I often, a lot of you guys, I've talked most of you guys before, and I'll mention, I think that I can test. Even if people did poorly, sometimes I'll say, yeah, but none of you I don't think are really out to lunch. That's because that's what I'm doing. I look at the distribution and I say, is there anybody who's off on their own? Or I call people off on their own. Because what that usually means is somebody's just confused. If there's a bunch of people there and there's continuity, like if this thing was sort of continuous such that we had some observations here and here and here, I would probably think my test was too hard. So I would say, no one is really confused. And you, I think you've all heard me say that, right? Now, nobody here's at the lunch. Some of, you guys, some of you guys should work a little harder, but no one's in trouble, right? See, because I have faith in measurement, right? And I know that the next time I measure something, eventually error cancels and that some things are harder, some things are easier, and it all kind of makes up for that, right? But if I see one or two people off on their own that got one out of 50 on a test, those people are in trouble. Right? And don't worry, that doesn't happen in this class. People don't get one. <coughs> Saw it in brain behavior once somebody got one. Was it somebody that showed up to the wrong class? No. Yeah. No, they, they, they did. Um, <coughs> their answer, they answered one question, which is the definition of neural Darwinism. And I'm not going to go through what neural Darwinism is. Come to my next class, <laughs> behavior, and, and come in about eight weeks. We're talking about development. And the person wrote, it's about neurons, which they misspelled, and used the wrong it's. <laughs> uh, and you like Darwin. <laughs> I gave him one out of five for the definition because it is about neurons. <laughs> and I thought, oh, yeah, I gave him something. Yeah, person never came back. But they were on the class list. They were on the class list. They dropped the class, though, which is wise because they were going to get a very poor grade. Yeah. So I've seen it, you know. And that's, again, but whereas I've had other cases where I look and I go, a lot of people got 22 out of 50, but there's also people getting 23, 24, 25, 27, 29. That doesn't concern me because I know that eventually other measurement will be, that test may have been hard, the material may have been hard, next test will be easier, the material's easy, it all balances out. But when I see a, a, a pattern like that, that concerns me, and I go talk to that sleep. <coughs> right? Uh, and again, I, I don't know actually, I don't know what these numbers are, I'm pretending they're test scores. <coughs> now, we don't always have numbers, um, sometimes we have categorical data, um, you get a bar graph of categorical data, not a histogram. This is roughly the same idea. You can do a pie chart. Uh, I hate pie charts. <coughs> but that's just, if you like, if, again, this is for you when you do this kind of stuff. So if you think pie charts are useful, if you're the kind of person that likes pie charts, then you should use pie charts. The, hist the, the uh, bar graph, the x-axis um, has no scale, really. Right? They're just categories. Just categories. So today was a STAT 2126 class, and we had 38 psych majors, 15 sociology, 18 uh, CESD majors, and five bio majors. And typically, actually, switched around. 
but we're making it a weird year. So let's just pretend it's a class like that. And I, don't, I think the sociology people now have their own stats or something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's fine, they can do their own thing. There's always the odd weird one, like somebody's a history major is taken for fun. <laughs> it happens, it happens. That's the only thing that fit into my schedule. Really? Okay. But we can't make a scale for a graph on this, can we? On the, on the x-axis, right? Because we couldn't make a scale. This is just, I don't even know, I think this was the order they were in the spreadsheet that I was using that I made up to do this. It's got nothing to do with anything other than the fact that that's the order they were in. Because we wouldn't say that like biology is a lot more majory than these other things. That's why it's along here. That doesn't make any sense. It, it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's a variable, but it's not, it's just categories. It's like, it's like hair color or something like that. Okay. But again, that's useful. We've got to remember that the axis here doesn't make any difference. There's your pie chart if you like pie charts. Um, in that case, drawing pie charts by hand is really hard. Because you've got to get a protractor and you've got to divide into 360 degrees and that's a pain. Uh, if you want to do it by hand, you can. Those are the kind of things. These, I would, I would just do that by hand, personally. I wouldn't even use a computer to do that because it's just too easy to do on your own. Um, but if you want to do pie charts or something, or you wanted to do, there's all kinds of ways you can do these things. Right? The site majors could all be little Wilhelm Wundt's or something. I don't know. These are all little Darwins. I don't know. Who the sociologists be? Karl Marx? I don't know. <laughs> I see that's a little sociology joke there. <laughs> um, you can do whatever you want. I, this is, again, this is for you, whatever makes you see things better. Right, so if you like pie charts, that's great. If you like those things that float around the internet that people call infographics, you know the things we used to call graphs? Um, God, that bugs me. I have a, a lot of things that bug me, as most of you know, that really shouldn't bother me. <laughs> um, whatever works for you, if it's stick men, I don't care, because this is just to give you a notion of what's going on. That's all it's for. Now, most of the time, most of the time in psychology. Now, um, we're dealing with sort of quantitative things, not qualitative things. Qualitative things aren't bad. Like how many people are in different majors. There's nothing wrong with those kind of data. You just analyze them differently. Right? Right? Um, and a lot of times in say, for example, sociology, you're dealing with qualitative things. And it's perfectly good research. There's, I'm not... I'm going to concentrate more on quantitative things because it's more what we deal with in psychology, but there's nothing wrong with qualitative stuff. Right? It's perfectly valid stuff. <coughs> it's analyzed in a, a, a quite a bit of a different way. So, with quantitative stuff, we have the histogram. This allows us... The nice thing about histogram is it allows us to see a central tendency. With the most common answer or the middle answer or whatever. This allows us to see the spread. How spread out something is. 
and it gives us an idea of the shape of the distribution. And again, I mention this stuff about quantitative because frankly, that's what this course is about. I know in sociology, they do a whole course, I think, on qualitative stuff. Yeah. They do, right, Amanda? Yeah, because Amanda's a double major in sociology and psychology. And, um, yeah, so there's a whole thing in how to deal with qualitative stuff, which is stuff that I don't really know about. Um, I know it exists, that's about all I know. <laughs> But you're not dealing typically, you can. I know you can take things and put a code frame on them and score them, right? But you typically aren't dealing with that kind of thing when you're doing qualitative stuff, right? You typically aren't. I mean, you're typically not turning it into numbers. That's not what you're trying to do there. That's not the goal, right? Okay. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I mean, if I'm wrong, I want to know. Okay, good. Whereas here, we got numbers. So, as my, my uh, old stats prof, uh, Ian Spence, who was a uh, UFT when I was in grad school, Ian's great. Uh, he's, a, he's the director of research at U of T now, like a sort of vice, academic vice president, so like, um, Scottish guy. Uh, the numbers don't know where they come from. You do anything you want to them. And he's right. They don't know where they come from. So you can, the beautiful thing about numbers is you can play with them. Right? So they give you, you can find out if you got, you can find out like averages and all that stuff. That's great stuff. They, the numbers don't care. Okay, you get skewness. Now, I know. There's negative skew and positive skew, and I always figured that negative skew should look like that, and that should be positive, but it's wrong. I'm wrong. And I heard there's a little trick. If you want to remember this, the tail tells the tale. <laughs> so the tail is to the negative, the tail is to the positive. Why didn't they just make it the other way around? I don't know. Yeah, actually, you measure skewness. There's a number you can get and I don't care. <laughs> you can do it, you know, it's, it's, it's something you can do. Um, this is in fact, negatively skewed data are what I expect to get with upper when I teach upper your classes. I expect to get negatively skewed distribution spreads. Because I used to get, usually you would get a very normal distribution, pretty much. But most of the people that are in the, t in the, the other end, they, they, they stop going to school. Or they stop taking classes in, in the major that I, I teach in, right? You get something really nice and pretty in, in intro. You very often get something like that. It's very good common. Uh, sometimes you get this too. Confused, understand, right? A lot of times this course starts out like this, <laughs> ends up like this. Very common. At the beginning, people are a little bit apprehensive, so they do so well, they're also locked in, they get stats a long time. Then by the end, everybody's fine. That's skewness. Then there's kurtosis. Uh, I had kurtosis once, they can now fix that without patient. It's not a problem. <laughs> it's the shot they do. It's a series of antibiotics. Um, okay, this is one of those terms I don't use, because I, I, I forget. So, like, leptokurtic means peaked and northern tall. And platokurtic means flat. So you would say that Paul Dupuis was more platocritic than me. That's right. I went. That's what I did. You can tell him I said that. Feel free. I know he makes blind jokes. I'm not screwing around anymore. Gloves are off. 
For those of you that don't know, Paul and I are quite good friends, and we make fun of each other all the time, even to our faces, <coughs> okay? Okay. Which people find shocking that don't know us. It's great. That's the fun. <coughs> uh, this is one of those, don't worry, I'm never going to ask you what these terms mean because I always forget them. <laughs> so, it's one of those things you'll see the term now and then. You might see it in a printout. If you do, um, you'll see what the kurtosis value is. Uh, and I, I keep, for the life of me, I don't even know. So don't worry too much about that. The shape, to me, the part that's important is, is, is the distribution symmetrical or asymmetrical? Because, you know, a skewed distribution isn't symmetrical. Uh, one that isn't skewed is going to be symmetrical. And typically, symmetrical distributions have one peak. So it can be unimodal or bimodal, one or two modes. So you will see, for example, and this is something, in fact, you see in STAT 2126, is at the beginning you see a, a, a bimodal distribution. You very often see a distribution of grades that looks like this. There's a bunch of people that just don't know. They're math-phobic. They're afraid of calculators. They don't know what square roots are. They were poorly advised in high school that, oh, you won't need math past grade 10. When will you ever need, need math except every day of your life? <coughs> right? And it's not math's hard, as you guys know. In 2126, the math's actually, it's trivially easy. It's the fact that you haven't used numbers and X's and stuff since you were in grade 10. That's what hurts people, right? So you get that, that's a bimodal distribution. So oftentimes what happens in that class is a lot of these people move over here and some of them drop the course. It's the way it works. It's sad, but it's true. And that's true anywhere. That's not just true here. So you might get a unimodal, I've never heard of a, I guess you could get a trimodal distribution, I've never seen one. It could be uniform, you could get a distribution like this. Uh, I've never seen that in grades, <laughs> it's just a flat line, could happen. I've seen people that seem like they're flat lined when they're writing tests, but I mean something different there. Anyone? No? Okay. <laughs> so, here's an example. Uh, these are the number of goals, goals scored per year by Mario Lemieux. Mario was a hockey player. If you don't know who Mario Lemieux was, if you don't know who Mario Lemieux was, can I have your passport, please? We will have it. Your citizenship revoked shortly. Uh, Mario was the captain of our Olympic team in 2002. And it's hockey. I didn't it. It's hockey. Okay. So in our Olympic team, you might have thought lawn bowling? It's not even in the Olympics. It's not soccer. It's a sport. <laughs> so making fun of soccer. Soccer's a sport. That's fun. There he is. Um, that's just after they won the Olympics in 2002. Uh, Mario was an amazing player. Mario, uh, if you don't know about him, broke into the NHL in 1984. Uh, in 1989, he took six weeks off because he had cancer and still won the scoring title. He quit in 19, I think it was 97, because of back problems. He came, he then bought the team that he used to play for, the Pittsburgh Penguins, which he still owns. He then came back in 2002, because he's like, you know, I could probably still play. And then he did. But he missed a lot of time to injury because of his back. And also, um, he had cancer. But he was out for six weeks, still in scoring time. He was an amazing hockey player. He was, a, he was a joy to watch Mario play. He's also six feet six tall. He's a, a giant of a man. 
Now, these are the number of goals he scored, and noting that the number, the magic number in the National Hockey League is 50. So, that's early on. Look at that, 85 goals, that's a lot. Most ever is 93 by Wayne Gretzky, so that's pretty good. Him and Gretzky played on the line together in the 87 Canada Cup, and they were really good. <laughs> um, you can see that then there's some funny years, because he's, in, he's injured here. Um, the cancer year is here. Uh, then he gets hurt with his back sore. He stops playing, comes back, it's 28 goals. <coughs> then he has a, a couple of rough years. In fact, he doesn't play until the Olympics, which he then leads us to winning a gold medal. Uh, his last year was Sidney Crosby's first year, and he said he wanted to come back and just play one, one more year with his next star player. So he played with Sidney Crosby for half a year, and he quit because he's back. I watched him. It was like watching someone playing the game holding a controller in an HL 13 or something. I remember watching him stand there on a power play. on the That's basically there. So he's here. He's telling guys where to pass the puck. Pointing his stick here. Go there. Over here now. He scored. God, he was good luck. I always wish you would play for Montreal. All right. So that's a pretty impressive set of numbers of goals. Histograms can start. You probably need to get to group these values somehow. So I just let uh, whatever spreadsheet program I was using group them. I had the numbers, and I said, just make me a histogram. So there's some midpoints here. Now, why do you say 90? You scored 90. You have to between 85 and 95. Okay. Yeah. That's it. So there's midpoints. It's the midpoint. So these limits are different. All we're doing here is we're just trying to get a feel for the numbers. It doesn't really matter. <coughs> All right. What are called the real limits. This is the only time I'll mention this. I know stats books go on for pages about real limits. I just don't care. Uh, I think it's 85 and a half to 94.5. Because there can't be half goals. That's all. Okay? Don't worry about it. I just let... I'm doing this for myself whenever I'm doing this. So I don't care about stuff like that. I'm not presenting this to anybody at a conference or in a, in, a, in a paper, so I'm just trying to get a feel for the numbers and I'm trying to see where does it peak, and he peaks around the magic number for, which is 50 goals for a national hockey player. There's a lot of years where he's got way more than 50. There's a bunch of years, this is something you can see right away if you even know anything about hockey. And I told him, all I can tell you was the magic number is 50, that's the, that's the number for excellence in a goal score. You would look and say, but he's got all these weird years where he's got around 10 or somewhere around 10, somewhere around 20 goals. Why is that? And that's when I explained to you he had back problems. And oh, yeah, he had cancer one year. I still can't, like, he's out for six weeks. He's out for six weeks with cancer. You don't hear that very often. Oh, I'm fine now. I've been through chemo for six weeks, and now I'll go back to playing as the best hockey player in the world. <laughs> Yeah, you have to make sure that whenever you do anything like this, the scale makes some sense. Our scale was okay there, um, especially on the y-axis. Because I can show you a graph like this. And we can say this was the cost of something. 
And we can say this is the cost of heating with, yeah. Cost of heating with electricity versus the auto cost of heating your house with oil. I mentioned that because I actually got this mailed to me once, but I didn't believe We were trying to get you to switch from using electricity to oil. Uh, it's funny, Newfoundland has all this natural gas reserve, but there's no natural gas heating in Newfoundland. You either heat your house with electricity, with oil heat, uh, propane something, you had a big propane tank to deliver your house, or wood, because you know, it's about just land in the Newfoundland, you sit and watch back, watch it back 50 meters. So, joke there. <laughs> so, you can see here, I mean, you got this in the mail, and that's obviously from the oil company. Right? And you said, maybe I should switch to oil. That looks like it's six times more expensive until you look at the scale. And it was something like this it was the number of dollars per month, and it was like 150. <laughs> they weren't lying, <laughs> but the scale's bad. Especially with some quantitative like that, the x-axis or the y-axis should start with a zero, shouldn't it? It really should. I remember looking at this, and we, we actually um, were on oil anyway, so it was no big deal. But they're like, you know, share with your friends. Yeah, I'm going to walk around with oil company propaganda. Look what Irving Oil is telling me. You should switch over. <laughs> but that's a scary graph, right? I mean, like that, that would, if you didn't know anything, you'd go, oh, God. I got to switch over to that electricity, right? Oh, my Jesus, my son. Yes, <laughs> boy. And in fact, it ended up being a little controversy. It ended up being mentioned in the paper. Uh, they called some stats prof somewhere at Memorial, they didn't call me, because uh, they would have got a, a profanity-laced tirade. I mean, they couldn't print the newspaper, but the person basically went up the profanity said that they were just lying bastards, which they were being. They weren't lying, but they're kind of being deceitful here, right? So the scale has to make sense on, on the y-axis. But it's not a lie. It's just a bad graph. And again, especially if you're doing this for yourself, and you know what the weird thing is? Sometimes um, software will do this to you. Sometimes software, the defaults will do this to you. You make a graph, and you, it just does that. And that's not good. So double check your axis. Now, one of the problems with the histogram uh, with group data, like we just, just saw, is we lost. Remember I talked about the richness of the data? It's lost. That's now gone. And that's okay with a big data set. That, like I talked about that still smoking data, data set, that smoking data set, that's not a big deal. You've got 500 data points. You probably want to lose some richness in those data. Excuse me. But doing it you know, with a small data set like this, I don't think you want to lose that. So what you could do is a stem and leaf plot, and that's what this is. So what we have here, basically in the stem part here, that's the number of goals. Uh, that's, that's the first digit, and then the second digit. Right? Excuse me. 
copied all those numbers right? I may not have. But you can see like 1, 6, 7, 17, 19, 28, 35, 43, 44, 45, 48, 50, 54, 69, 69, 70, 80, 70. Right? Pretty easy to read. But the nice thing is turn your head sideways, and it's a, it's a graph. Right? It gives, it gives you the, the relative frequencies. It's called an ordered stem and leaf. You can do a non-ordered one, which I don't know why you would, but the fruits that within the fours here, you wouldn't have them in order. Just interpret this just like a histogram. And it's easy to spot outliers. Now, I don't know what you call outlier in this. The term outlier is a, a statistical term that's very ill-defined. Because this is one guy's career. And they're all him doing it. So is that even an outlier? That seems a little bit of an odd way to put it. Okay. It preserves the data. This is the thing I like about a stem and leaf. Um, and it's easy to spot the, the, the middle or the 50th percentile, which in this case is 44. Right? Because you have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. So we're going to go in 9. Right? 17, so 16 in the 8, so we go 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. And then we get 8 on the other side. The middle number is 44. His median number of goals, or the 50th percentile, is 44. Right? Just the middle number. Just the middle number. <coughs> Make sense? You see what I did there? That wasn't a fancy calculation. I counted. And I could even just use all my fingers and toes because it's only 17. <laughs> didn't have to do anything beyond that, right? It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Nothing to worry about. Okay. Now, what you can do now is get what's called what's called what's called the five number summary. Um, you get the median, which we had, which was uh, 44. Then you can get basically the median of the first half, right? And that's called the first quartile, and that's 17 and a half. I've just done a median of those first nine numbers and a median of the second number of nine, nine numbers. So 17 and a half and 61 and a half. How did I get halves? Well, we've got to go halfway between those two. We've got to interpolate, right? That's the first quartile, the third quartile, and the quartiles are the 25th and the 75th percentile. So that's halfway in the first eight and the second eight is what I've done there, which actually doesn't seem right. I probably should have gone, it doesn't really matter a great deal, but what I probably should have done here is gone, because we had nine on either side, I probably should have gone from 44 to 85 and from one to 44, and then got the fifth number each time, is where I should have gone. There was only eight on either side. Really? Yeah. Let's look. I believe you. Oh, I'm inside this. Yes, 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 okay. Yes. For, oh, but that shouldn't be 17 and a half, that should be 18. 
Because halfway between 17 and 19 is 18. Yeah. And then 1, 2, 3, 4. And it should be between 54 and 69. So I think the other one is correct, actually. Yeah, 61 and a half, that makes sense. Okay. But you see what I did. The important thing is what the numbers are. The important thing is you see what I did, right? Halfway. So halfway between the minimum and the median, and the median and the maximum are the third and first quartile. procedures written in such a small font. Because if there's a real emergency, what I want to be doing is this. <laughs> what do I do? Oh, suspicious person is code yellow. Oh, look at, look at, I didn't know that. Look at that. <laughs> it's a code yellow. Armed intruder locked down code red. Ooh, that's broken. But suspicious person, that could be like Paul. <laughs> code yellow, it's the stopped having terrorist codes, we've got codes. So I guess that makes us more important than the U.S. government. Yeah, that's right. There's a fifth number. You're right. You were scoring at home. You missed it. I hadn't told you the fifth one. Uh, there's also the minimum and the maximum. 185. That gives you five numbers. You get the minimum, maximum, first quartile, median, third quartile. By the way, the minimum and the maximum give you the range uh, that shouldn't have been something that I even had to point out to you, <laughs> but I thought I would. Uh, by the way, range is an interesting one because you'll see range written as, in this case, 84, 85 minus 1, or you'll see it written 1 to 85. Either of those is fine. I like 1 to 85 because, again, it gives you more of an idea of the, uh, the number 84 without any context doesn't help you. You can take those five numbers and make what's called a box and whisker plot or a box plot. Which gives you an idea of the shape of the data. Okay. So you see what I'm doing so far? What I've done here is I made a box plot. First quartile, third quartile, median, minimum, maximum. That's one way to do a box plot. There's a couple, okay? One of them, another way to do it is to take this distance, which is the third to the first quartile, which is called the interquartile distance, so the IQD, multiply it times one and a half, and then put it there. And then do the same thing here. Why didn't I do that this time? The other way to do it is just go to the minimum and the maximum. Why didn't I do that? Because um, if, if I did, I'd be below zero, and you can't score a negative number of goals. It's a meaningless quality, a quantity. As hard as the Toronto Maple Leafs try, you can't score fewer goals than zero. <laughs> I'm sad they got rid of Brian Burke because he kept them down so well. Lending more than they scored. Very true, very true. There's a goaltending issue. I don't know. 
That's one of the issues, is, but there's a goaltending problem. Better coach. Yeah. I think Carlos is a better coach than Ron Wilson. Same guy. You think so? Okay. Carlos is a better coach than I think Ron Wilson got lucky at one point. Lucky-ish. I mean, you can't. Yeah, we can have this discussion sometime. He always looks so angry. What? what? He always looks so angry. Ron Wilson He was never happy. No. No. Which is good, because I hate the Toronto Maple Leafs. So anything that would keep him down. Like, I love the Ballard years in the 70s. It was funny. <laughs> Found it funny. She talked. My team's right back. Michelle Terry. Um, so we had some success in Pittsburgh. You can. When I said box and whisker plot, if you do the one with you do the um, one and a half your quartile distance, you put a little line there. It's called a whisker. Who developed this name, box and whisker plot? <laughs> that's what I'm you know, wondering. So yeah, if you did that, you take one and a half of that, so it's that's to there. And you go like that, and you draw a little line there, and that's called the whisker. I thought the, those ones would have been the whisker. Okay. No, I don't know. Maybe they, maybe <laughs> they are. It doesn't really matter. Um, what does this allow us to do? It gives us an idea, first of all, of skewness, doesn't it? Because it shows us that there's as much data in this part here as there is in here. That's useful. Yeah, I've never seen this one of these presented Ever. In a paper. It doesn't happen. But again, it's something that allows you to get a feel for your numbers. And that's a useful thing. So I like that. I like that. Okay? And I've done these before. But I mean, the, the names. Stem and leaf plot, box and whisker plots. So who came up with these names? Children's book author? You know. <laughs> Beatrix Potter. Beatrix Potter. Yes. Very good. <laughs> and beautiful little hand-painted pictures of them as well in each book. Beatrix Potter. I never thought about Beatrix Potter. Oh. So, that's some ideas about shape. Okay. Yeah. That's some stuff you can talk about shape. Um, we also talked about central tendency. So, or we can talk about central tendency. So, One of the one of the three properties necessary to describe distribution and the shape, right? All that kurtosis stuff. So one of the things that goes the box and whisker plot and the stem and leaf plot gives you actually is they give you an idea of shape and they give you an idea of central tendency. That's pretty good. And they give you an idea of how spread out it is. So those are the three things you need to know, and those are they're giving you numbers. Well, I guess you're getting the median. That's a number. Um, but you're getting a really good idea of how to describe something just by drawing pictures. I think that's useful. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. As long as I don't think about how horrible I feel, I'm fine. As soon as I start realizing how horrible I feel, then I don't feel like everything seems really bright. You know, it's like when you get kind of sick and everything seems really bright. And especially if it's a sinus infection. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. I shall live. 
I will soldier on. Okay, here's an example. Consider these numbers. 159, 20, 30. Again, I don't look at it. And consider these numbers. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. So two batches of numbers. Both have the same mean of 13. I know, you know what means are. You take the total and divide the number of numbers. Okay, well, let's number 65. So I have 65 by 5, you get 13. Right. If you want to do that yourself, feel free, or you can just accept that I can do a written tech. <laughs> okay. So, that's fine. <coughs> They're the same but different, right? Because, we've got, again, these are our two batch numbers, 1, 5, 9, 20, 30, and 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. We know they're different, but the mean is only one thing, and we tend to concentrate overly, I think, on that. They're both the same mean, and they're both symmetrical. If you were to look at these, look, we've got the distance from 13, like, they're both symmetrical such that they're, they're flat, aren't they? They're both flat. <coughs> Excuse me. How are they different? Well, one's more spread out than the other one. For sure. Uh, the top one there is way more spread out than the bottom one. Find spread, we've got to measure it. So, how can we measure spread evidence? Um, the range is a start. Right? One of them, and that's what we talked about just a little bit ago, one of them goes from 1 to 30, the other one goes from 11 to 15. So, we know that the first one is more spread out. Well, actually, yeah, the first one is more spread out than the second one. Yeah, that's good. We know that. That's, that's okay. That's not telling us a great deal, but it's a start. And it's a pretty crude measure. This isn't taking into account the number of observations. Because what if, okay, 1 to 30, 11 to 15, but what if this went 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, like had almost all the numbers in there, then frankly, the spread, then they're both about a spread, they're both a spread out at, as each other. <laughs> we can look at the interquartile distance. That's the third quartile minus the first quartile. That's a little, that's kind of like a mini spread in some respects, and it's a little less crude. It's a little less crude, but it's still a crude measure of spread. <coughs> right. It's better, but it's still a pretty crude measure. It's not going to help us a great deal. We need something better. Something that's kind of like the mean, something we calculate. The mean has an intuitively pleasing feel about it, right? Because if you take all the numbers together, you divide by the number of numbers, it just makes a lot of intuitive sense. The mean is like the balancing point. So something that's like that would be nice. So like the average amount that the data are spread out, that's what we need. Well, we can try that. Let's do that. The average amount of data are spread out. Okay? Well, that's what that is. That's the, de the deviation from the mean, the sum of the scores minus the mean divided by the number of observations. 
Left with 1 minus 13, 5 minus 13, 9 minus 13, plus 20 minus 13, plus 30 minus 13, minus 12, plus minus 8, plus minus 4, plus 7, plus 17, which gives us 0 over 5. That's useless. And in fact, if you think a bit about this, that makes complete sense because, because the mean's the balancing point, it has to be as much on the positive as on the negative, so we're going to get a zero. If we get a zero, the universe is working the way it's supposed to. So that's not helping us. There's a pesky little problem here, and it's these negative numbers. Right? You shouldn't worry about writing all these numbers down because this is a useless calculation. Okay? If you are and you don't want to feel bad, you want to finish, just go ahead and finish that off. But <laughs> you end up with zero. And you'll always end up with zero. Right? That's a billions whatsoever. Okay. They're always going to sum to zero. And again, this makes sense, I think, because the, the means the balancing point. If you think of it as a, if you think of a distribution as a thing, and I want you to start trying to do this. If you think of a, a distribution, which is just a bunch of numbers, as a, a bunch of scores, as a thing, that has a balance point, there's going to be as much mass on one side as the other, it has to be zero. Or that wouldn't be the mean. Okay? Negatives. Um, well, absolute value. Remember absolute value? It's one of those things you learn in elementary school, you said, so I have no use in my life. It's, it's a number with that respect to its sign. So you actually get a, this is a real thing, it's called the mean absolute deviation. It's a real thing, it's actually got a name. It's the absolute value of x minus x bar divided by n. x bar again is the mean. 1 minus 13, 5 minus 13, 9 minus 13, 4 minus 13, 3 minus 13, 12, 8, 4, 7, 17, over 5, 9.6. Mean absolute deviation doesn't have a, um, a symbol like other things do. It just got this. It's bad. Which I think is kind of funny. Bad, I tells you. So let's see, it's a real quantum. It's a real quantum. So there you go. That's it is a measure of spread. Questions about that? You see what I did there? All that the absolute deep values do is they just get rid of those negatives. All they do. And it gives us a number, but it's not nearly as useful as you might think. So some things you think they're cool when you think about it, but they really aren't. I know Dwayne has left that joke in. Mm -hmm. My joke. 
my job. But I bet he doesn't do his rant about mullets at the mall, because that's mine. You ever go to the mall, you go to the station mall, uh, and collect the mullets? You do that? That's fine. You try to collect them. Well, you can definitely you just see people. You see people, and you can take... My, my daughter and I, we used to, we don't do this anymore, uh, but we used to take pictures of them. <laughs> and send them to each other. Oh my god. Because you see people, and you just got to covertly take out your phone. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I people want it. That's, they're in public. They're in public. That's not violating any ethical guidelines right there. Go out in public with a mullet. <laughs> I, I was going to get my hair cut. I always ask the uh, person doing my hair, I said, you know, do you, if someone comes in and says, I want a mullet, what do you say? <laughs> I've heard them, they say everything from, well, I just, whatever the customer wants to, I won't do that, to I try to convince them something different. A lot of people might be in mullet denial, too. They think that they don't, you know. Don't have one? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not a mullet because, you know. Yeah, that's right. It's not a mullet because it's hockey game or something. No, I mean, uh, one of my favorite things I ever saw was a guy, kind of a really kind of trendy looking, metrosexual kind of looking guy. You know, you see them about every 45 years in Sault Ste. Marie. So. <laughs> but he's a, he's, a, he's a good looking young guy. He's dressed really well. Uh, he even smelled good, and I thought he smelled good. I mean, like, you know, like he's, so he looks great. And he's walking around the mall. He's probably going to go to work. He's probably going to work at Le Chateau. Like, I mean, he's. He's walking along, and there's these two guys standing there, and they're both in sweatpants and uh, high school football jackets from the 80s. I uh-huh. You know? And they got these horrible mullets, and they're sitting there, and the one guy, and the guy just looks good. He's got a couple of earrings, but he just, you know, he, he's dressed up a little bit. One guy looks at his friend and goes, Can you believe people leave the house looking like that? And I went, that, that's, it. that's it. That's it. That was the greatest moment of my life. Because you guys should be on a TV show. That should have been on. That should have been. I, I wish I was video for YouTube and with the hits and I would be famous. Because it was just beautiful. Because it's like, you guys don't You have no conception of anything. It's great. Yeah. They both look like Uncle Rico from, um, you know, uh, Napoleon Dynamite. And they were living back in about that time. Back in 82, I could throw a football a quarter mile. It's beautiful. It was beautiful. It's okay. I think it took me until 2000 to get my brother out of parachute power. See? So perhaps he was one of those guys. It could have been. Yeah. It very easily could have been. The other one was wearing white jeans until about the same time frame, too. So. Well, that's okay. You know, I mean, look, if it made him happy. Skin tight white jeans. <laughs> All right, well, I was already sick. Um, Please <laughs> turn in the stomach. <laughs> so, the map is, is, is actually kind of neat. Beautiful, pleasing, intuitive sense, but it's almost useless to us. It has some use. There are statistical procedures that use it. We're not going to talk about it in this class, but there are statistical procedures that use it, and I've actually seen it mentioned in a paper. So it does show up. It's exceedingly rare, but it does show up. Um, and the kind of stats that we're going to deal with, it's, it's a dead end. It's a, it's a calculation. It's a dead end. And I can tell you, you might say, well, that's all the other statistics we have are based on the standard deviation slash variance. You might say, well, that's not fair. Why didn't they develop something that was based on this? Because it's more intuitively pleasing, and it really is. Uh, because 
the calculus behind all this stuff, he uses the variance. And all the theorems that are the really serious math behind all this stuff, use the variance. So things don't work with the mean absolute deviation. Uh, the calculus behind statistics doesn't work. You, don't worry, you don't have to know any calculus. But the calculus behind this stuff, uh, it, just, it won't work with the mean absolute deviation, which is a shame because it just makes so much freaking sense. It really is too bad because it has really nice intuitive appeal. It makes a great deal of sense to me. But it's not going to get us anywhere. All right. There's got to be another way or we can stop the class now forever. So there is another way. The other way to get rid of negatives, as you know, is to square the numbers. So we're going to square those deviations. And you guys knew that. That's where we're all building towards, you know. So like negative 9 squared is 81. It's not negative 81. You can't, get, you can't square a number and get a negative number. because negative 9 times negative 9 is positive 81. I mean, unless you're dealing with imaginary numbers, right? Because the square root of negative 1 is i. But we're not going to deal with imaginary numbers. That's one of those things they taught you in high school. You go, what? You mean imaginary numbers? <laughs> I think numbers are real. <laughs> I was wondering that when they were teaching us that, like, number theory kind of stuff in school, because they'd say, these are the real numbers, and I remember thinking to myself, yeah, what about the unreal numbers? Then they eventually teach you about imaginary numbers, and you say, why? There's stuff in, uh, in physics that actually uses electrical, uh, like electrical stuff uses some imaginary numbers, which is weird. It's really weird. And I don't feel well, so I think we'll stop there. Because I'm going to teach you more classes today. So. Um, any questions though for me? for today? All right, thanks, guys.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.